Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Acts 6. If you're using a hardback Bible from uh, our box out front, you should find it on page 914. While you're turning there, let me uh, say a couple of things. First of all, uh, we um, this is the, the fifth and final sermon in this uh, series on elders and deacons. We, we looked first at Christ as the model elder, the one true good shepherd. Uh, we then spent two weeks on the office of elder, uh, what an elder does, what an elder is. Last week we actually looked at uh, Christ as the model deacon, uh, his care for the physical needs of those around him. This morning we will look at the office of deacon together. Uh, let me encourage you, uh, you're going to want to keep your copy of God's Word handy. Uh, we're not going to read a passage and set it aside and be done with it. In fact, you're going to play a little bit of Bible drill uh, this morning. We're going to need a couple of other passages as well. So uh, it'll be a little bit of a, a Bible drill test for you uh, from time to time uh, throughout this sermon. So Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Uh, let me ask that you stand as we read God's Word together. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom whom we will appoint to this duty and we will devote ourselves to but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word and what they said pleased the whole gathering and they chose Stephen a man full of faith and of the holy spirit and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas a proselyte of Antioch and they set these they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, our ears remain stopped, our hearts cold and callous, our minds weak and feeble, unless you work in us, on us, through this, your word. And we pray that you would do that, that that it might even be said here in Athens that the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. Through Christ, we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. There are, I suppose, um, a number of reasons a church might split. I suppose it's possible that there are reasons, there are good reasons why a church might split. More often than not, they seem like generally bad reasons when that happens in a church setting. 
conflict is a is an opportunity really ripe for division and separation and that's exactly what uh, we find going on in Acts chapter 6 maybe you'd sort of think of the church in Acts as okay yeah maybe a difficult time but that sure does seem like a really sort of ideal church situation where i mean 3000 converted in at one time uh, that would be kind of cool wouldn't it i mean we don't see that today maybe maybe in some ways we look back at acts and think that that looks like a an idyllic time an ideal situation in uh, the life of the church but there's conflict in acts chapter 6 it's not it's not peace it's not happy it's not easy there's actually conflict at the root of the creation of the office of deacon. And in fact, it appears that it's racially motivated. It's racially grounded. The, the conflict in Acts 6 is, is a racial conflict. You see in verse 1, there's a complaint by the Hellenists against the Hebrews. The, the Greek-speaking Gentile background, Greek-speaking converts are complaining to the Hebrew-speaking, Aramaic-speaking converts. It's race relation tension. It's racial. It's a racial struggle. There's a complaint. These it's it's Greek Hebrew. It's your background. It's it's who are your people? That's where the conflict is going on in Acts chapter 6. But the conflict is over. Care for their widows. It was a, a, a practice that began, I mean, we see it back in Acts 2, we see it in Acts 4, we, we see several illustrations, examples uh, throughout uh, Acts up to this point of people in need and that need being met when the rest of the church members would sell a piece of property that they didn't need anymore, didn't want anymore, and take the money and and drop it at the feet of the apostles and let them distribute to those in need. That seems to have been the practice. Now let me... You have to throw the caveat in there no, I don't think Scripture's teaching communism or socialism. Don't, don't run with an illustration and say, well, see, clearly this is what's going on. No, it's all voluntary. Nothing's, nothing's mandated. Nothing's required. It was all done voluntarily. It's, it's, it's love and care. It's not socialism or communism. The reality is that the church didn't want their other members to struggle and suffer and and go hungry and go without in some way or another. And so those with plenty would sell extra and give to those who didn't have enough. That's the daily distribution at the end of verse 1. It appears that that distribution was carried out by the apostles. You, you see that back in Acts 4. They're serving 
either giving money to those in need or serving food to those in need. Verse 2, the, the apostles say it's not right for us to give up preaching the Word to serve tables. That, that could be a literal table on which food is placed. It could be a financial table, like you know, a pre-Excel spreadsheet. It could be along those lines. Whatever the case, they're, they're serving either financially or, or food to those who are in need. The complaint then, the context is the, the Greek-speaking widows are not getting the same care that the Hebrew-speaking widows are getting. There's an, an undertone, at least, of, of favoritism, of showing partiality, of of the Hebrew, the apostles caring for their own kind, if you will. It's, it's, it's the need for mercy ministry. But notice, notice that the deacon, the office of deacon is instituted not to care for people outside the church, but to care primarily, initially, for people inside the church. These are... These are church members. These are people who are all members of of one body. And this one group within the church is being left out and is is complaining, is struggling. Hey, our our widows are not getting the same care. It's, it's, it's It's a very real opportunity for division. There's there's a, a, a Setting is really ripe for argument and frustration and splitting and just leaving and going somewhere else. Instead, they come and complain, you're not, you're not caring for our widows. And the apostles figure out a way to solve the problem. Notice in verse 2, the apostles are the ones generally handing out uh, the, either the money or the food. They're the ones overseeing the mercy ministry up to this point. In fact, you could look back at Acts 4 and, and in verse 35 and see that uh, illustrated more clearly. But they recognize that they're the ones serving tables. In other words, there actually are two reasons for instituting the office of deacon. One is to to meet the physical needs of those within the body, to care for those in need within the flock. But the other reason is to relieve the apostles from doing it. The other reason is so that somebody else can do it so that the apostles won't give up the prayer closet, uh, Scripture reading, teaching, the lecture hall, those sorts of things. We, we see in Acts 6 the, the instituting of the office of deacon. But we also see the investing of authority on the deacon. Notice it involves two different groups of people. These men get their authority from the congregation and from the apostles. Notice the instructions in verse 3. The apostles say to the the body, the church, pick from among you seven men that meet these qualifications, bring them to us, we'll approve them, and 
they will carry out this duty. We, however, will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Why seven men? I don't know. It doesn't mean you have to have seven deacons or your church is in sin. That's not the point at all. That was their number. That's what they, they went with. But the congregation selects the men. The apostles set the criteria, the qualifications that they have to meet. And they then bring those men to the apostles. And they appoint them to that office. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. You're going to want to stick your finger here and and leave it there when you get there because we'll be back again in 1 Timothy chapter 3. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the first seven verses in the office of elder. Verses 8 through 13 deal with the office of deacon. Notice verse 10. Let them also be tested first. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. You can't miss the fact that the men selected by the congregation were well known to the congregation. The apostles said, pick men that fit these criteria, that fit these qualifications. Well, how are you going to know if they fit that qualification or not? Well, you know them. You're around them. They've been around a while. They're not recent converts. They're not they're well known to the body. For that matter, they're, they're not recent converts. And they're not recent additions to the flock, most likely. You see them in ministry. You test them. You watch them engage in ministry. And then select them for the office of deacon. I can't help but notice that of all the people, humanly speaking, who could have just picked seven men of their own accord, it would be the twelve apostles. Of all the people who could have said, well, we're going to tell you who the men are going to be, that take this role. We'll pick them for you because we're the apostles. We've been with Jesus. I mean, if anybody had, had the, the, the insight into the spiritual condition of people in the flock, surely it was the apostles. And yet they say, you pick them. They say to the congregation, here are the qualifications you Choose the men. You submit the names of seven men that fit these qualifications. Not even the the apostles could force officers onto the local church. I find that fascinating. And so they they set these these requirements, these qualifications. Here are the things that that they must meet. Here are the qualifications they must meet. You bring us the names and we will appoint them to this office. And yet, not only does the, does the authority come from the congregation, but the authority also comes from the apostles. 
They lay hands on these men. They ordained them to this office. So you see this two-way street of investing authority into the deacons. The names come from the congregation. The apostles ordained them, lay hands on them for that office. You see in verse 8, they're gathered together. Not verse 8. I was looking at the wrong chapter. Verse 8 of 1 Timothy 3, I think. Deacons dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. You see this, these qualifications laid out in Timothy that Paul gives to Timothy for selecting deacons in uh, his church at First Pres in Ephesus. And that's, that list really is the same as the list that the apostles give in Acts chapter 6. Full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, men of a good reputation. They're the headings really that cover what you read in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So as these men are invested with the authority to carry out the, the work of serving tables, of caring for those in need, they, the authority comes both from the congregation and from the apostles. They set the qualifications. The congregation selects the men. The apostles lay hands on them and ordain them and set them apart for this ministry. We see in Acts 6 the institution of the office of deacon, the investing of the authority on the deacon. We also see the instructions of the deacon's character. Notice verse 3. Pick out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Does that sound like a verse you've read before? There's a, there's a verse that is probably skipped over, a verse that we miss, a verse that quite honestly, we may just treat as a throwaway verse. You know, so what's that verse in there for? I mean, there's 18 years of life in one verse at the end of Luke chapter 2. In verse 52 of Luke 2, we read, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. That's essentially the exact same thing that the apostles tell the church in the selection of deacons. It's essentially the same thing. The only thing missing is there's no height requirement for deacons. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature, in favor with God and in favor with men. There's Out of this list in Acts 6, the only thing missing is stature. Your height, your weight, those are immaterial when it comes to the office of deacon. Luke summarizes Jesus' growth from age 12 to age 30 in Luke 2.52. And so he calls attention that Jesus grew up. He grew in wisdom. He grew taller. He grew older. He matured physically as people do. He grew in favor with God and in favor with man. Those are essentially the exact same requirements 
in verse 3 of Acts 6 without any expectation of stature. The list is more specific, of course, in 1 Timothy 3, even as we've already seen. He must have a good reputation. He must have, have the, a good reputation with those who are outside the church and inside the church. It's, he, he's got to be known. He has to be well known by, uh, by those who, are, who work with him, we're going to set him into this office. We're going to place him into the office of deacon. He has a, a good reputation. He's, he's growing in favor with men. He's not at risk of bringing, the, bringing shame on the name of Christ. He's not at risk of, of shaming Christ in those, to those inside the church or outside. He's not, he's not living one way in the church and a different way at work. He's not a different person at home and the office and the church. He's the same everywhere he goes. A deacon must be full of the Spirit and of wisdom. He knows God's Word and knows how to teach it and apply it and understand it, but apply it to the lives of the people that he will be interacting with. He'll be living out the Gospel of Christ. He's dignified. Verse 8. That, that word to you and me sounds nose in the air-ish. It sounds sort of uppity, dignified. Like he maybe even talks with a, a hint of a British accent because that's even more dis, dignified than an actual one, right? I mean, it's like he has this, this air about him that is just better than everyone else. And he talks like that. And, and he's real breathy in his voice. and he's, he's, That's not what the word means. It doesn't mean that he's some highfalutin, hoity-toity, look down on everyone kind of an attitude. It means he's respectable. That he's worthy of our respect. It's the one word version of verses 2 and 3 with regard to the office of elder, above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, what, what Paul does in a longer list for the elder, he essentially does in one word for the deacon. He's dignified. He's not double-tongued. He's not addicted to wine. One who, one who loves his wife and manages his household well is dignified, is worthy of our respect. It's that sort of thing. And so you hear in 1 Timothy 3, what Luke recorded as of good reputation in Acts 6. Paul, writing to Timothy, lays out the exact same kinds of requirements and, and expectations for deacons at first present Ephesus that, is, that exists in Jerusalem as well. He must, verse 9, hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. He's committed to God's Word. He's committed to knowing it. He's committed to understanding it. And he's committed to living it out. And seeing it lived out in the lives of those around him. In other words, he's full of the Spirit and of wisdom. To take the, the headings from Acts chapter 6. We see the institution of the office of deacon. The investing of his authority the instructions for his character, 
And lastly, we see the implications for the church. Let me make just a couple of observations as they relate to Grace Covenant Church. It would be easy for us, either as a church plant or, I mean, as a, a church at all, it would, be, it would be easy for us as really one of two Presbyterian churches in Athens, three, we're in the minority, in other words. It would be easy for us to, to think, what does church government matter? I mean, it would be easy to come to God's Word and go, okay, are you really going to say there's a right way to organize the church? I mean, I get it, the Bible talks about Jesus, and there's only one way of salvation, and He's the only way uh, to be saved, to find hope and comfort for the life that is to come. Are you also going to tell me that the Bible says there's, there's a way to organize the church? Yeah. I mean, part of it is, we, we, we see Scripture as our only rule of faith and practice. That means the things that we do, not just in our lives individually, but, but even corporately, the way we structure and organize Grace Covenant Church has got to conform to the, to the order laid out for us in God's Word. Scripture gives us instructions for the organization of a church, for the structure of, of how a church should operate. We don't think... That church government is immaterial. Scripture speaks to it. And so we abide by our understanding of Scripture. But I want you to notice something. The organization of the local church is never just about the organization of the local church. Did you notice right on the heels of a church government passage... The gospel grows, the word of God spreads, and yet more people are converted to Christ, including priests. You saw that in verse 7. Okay, we have this, this race relation problem in the church that requires a new government, church government structure to solve the problem. And in light of that, the Word of God continued to increase. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly. You engineer types, you math types, that grows faster than addition. They weren't added to their number, it multiplied. That's faster growth rate than just merely adding new people. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. There's a picture here. It's, it's sort of twofold, really. One, church government, church structure, the, the addition of deacons should lead to actually reaching more lost people. It should lead to the growth and advancement of the gospel in Athens and in Limestone County and Alabama 
and beyond. It should lead to the growth of the kingdom of Christ. But there's also the relational impact of this passage. It's precisely because there was a race relation tension in the church that was solved and met that brought further unity that led to the growth and expansion of the kingdom in Jerusalem. That's one of the things we want for Grace Covenant. That's one of the things we want for Grace Covenant is that, is that as, we, as we head towards... I keep using the big fancy word. I don't know what better way to say it. I, I don't have a better way than saying particularization. It's, quite honestly, it's not an easy word to say. You try it sometime. It's, it doesn't just roll off the tongue. But it's a whole lot easier than saying that's you know, the fancy Presbyterian word for becoming your own church with your own elders and perhaps with your own deacons. As we head that way, the goal, the hope is that adding structure to Grace Covenant doesn't merely solve issues for us. That it actually benefits the community. It actually advances the gospel in Athens and in Limestone County. That it will make us better ministers of the gospel of Christ to reach the lost in this community. Second uh, implication for us as a church we find in 1 Timothy 3. At the end of, again, this is the second time now, both of these passages you have church structure passage that leads to something beyond church structure. Notice verse 16 of 1 Timothy 3. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Paul spends the first seven verses of 1 Timothy 3 talking about Here are the qualifications for elders. Verses 8 through 13, here are the qualifications for deacons. These are the characteristics these men must have before taking those offices. And he concludes with the doxology. Not the doxology, a doxology. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And there you see it. In most of your Bibles, it's going to be inset like a, like a poem. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Would you expect a conversation about elders and deacons to end with a praise song? Would you expect that conversation to end with a a song of praise to Christ? Paul recognizes that apart from His grace, none of us fit any of these qualifications. Apart from Christ's work in us, we'd never have elders, we'd never have deacons, you'd never have anybody stand in front of you and preach. Apart from the work of Christ in and through His people, no one is ever going to fit these qualifications. It all comes from Christ. When you find men qualified to be elders and deacons in your church, whom should you praise? It should be Christ. 
It should drive us to sing the doxology, to praise and honor and glorify His name for His work in us as a body, in us individually, to raise up men to serve as elders and deacons. The presence of these qualifications is none other than testimony to the Spirit's work in our own hearts and lives. We want that said of us. We want, we want conversations about the growth of Grace Covenant. We want conversations about, about elders and deacons and potential elders and deacons at Grace Covenant Church to end with a doxology of sorts. I'm even tempted to challenge our music folks to put this verse, verse 16, to music so that we can end after the benediction on that day when that day comes. How great would it be to finish a a whole worship service on, on church officers with the praise and honor and glory of Christ. We want men qualified to serve as elders and deacons. But we want that to drive us more eagerly to the praise and honor and glory of Christ. Let's pray together. Our great God and our King, we thank You that You have recorded for us in Your Word that which You want us to know. Yes, there are secret things that belong to You. Yes, there are things that You've not revealed to us. Yes, there are things You've withheld from us because we are but finite and sinful creatures. Things we could not and would not understand. But You have revealed things to us. What You have revealed is to be for our good is to equip us to serve and honor and glorify You in all the things that we do and say and think. And that means the government and organization of the local church. Father, we pray that You would raise up men to serve as elders and deacons at Grace Covenant. And that You would quickly drive us not to pat ourselves or these men on the backs, but to fall to our knees to praise and honor and glorify Christ who is at work in His church, who is at work in His creation, who is sanctifying us by the Word that the honor and glory and praise would all belong to Him so that, Lord Jesus, Your kingdom would grow yet further. Use us to that end. Through Christ we ask it. Amen.